have to leave in my crying like a four-year-old. Uh, all right. Crying is okay. <laughs> I know. I know. But long, awkward pauses in a podcast is not cool. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to Pulling Curtains. Hey. Hi, Megan and Cliff. Hey, Nate. Hello. Hey, Megan. Hi. I'm pretending that we're saying hello, even though we've been recording for like 15 <laughs> minutes now. But it sounds spontaneous, right? Exactly. It's like yeah, in the moment. That's the hallmark now. of a good podcast is spontaneity. Yep. We just, we hit, we, we get onto Zoom and then immediately we just do that introduction right exactly, there. Exactly. Then it's ready to publish. So we're gonna we're gonna give you an interview today, or we're gonna we're gonna play an interview for you that we had a few days ago. And I'll just give this warning: if you're uncomfortable with grown men crying, you might not want to <laughs> listen to this one. Our uh, our soft open was a little uh, was foreshadowing of things to come. Yeah, we we recommend the hanky with this one again. definitely, <laughs> but this time it is not me crying. So it's an interview with. Daniel and Carly, and Carly is my cousin, and uh, I get emotional. I, w- I did manage to edit out most of the really gross, ugly cries. Um, yeah, and not that I think it's uh, wrong for a grown man to cry. I don't, but it is okay. Mm-hmm. It is, and I'm ashamed of it. You're canceled, and that's why I. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's why I cut it all out. Anything we need to tell everybody before we do some weird sound effect into the interview we're glad you're here people for sure we are yeah thanks to all of you who are listening each week uh for all the comments and texts we get and we just it's really nice to have uh people out there listening and sharing in these stories with us and connecting through our podcast we really appreciate it I mean, it's therapeutic for me. I don't know if yeah. anyone else is getting anything out of it, but, but I am. And at right. the end of the day, isn't that what I really know. matters? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, then uh, let's hit uh, let's hit some weird sound effect and go back to our interview with Daniel and Carly. Okay, so we got some special guests on the podcast today that are uh, pretty special to Nathan, though I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. Uh, Nathan, you want to introduce us? Yeah, of course. So we have uh, Carly and Daniel. They are a married couple, fairly newly married couple. And congratulations, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So Carly is my first cousin. And then I met Daniel through Carly. And they're they're cool. And I I wanted to hear their story. And that's why I asked them if they would share on the podcast. Awesome. So we're glad you're here. Welcome, guys. So, can y'all give us a little bit of background on your stories, your sweaters, or, you know, you can go um, individually or together, but yeah, just give us a little background. Yeah, so I grew up, I've listened to Nathan's episode, the, the, we have a, a deep connection in the Southern Baptist Church. My church did uh, help be- begin the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Their major schism was uh, ordaining uh, women ministers. So, so my church actually did a lot of good. I was very, very active in the youth group. And it, it was our second home. We were there Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, every single time. I ended up getting a fob key to my church. Um, <laughs> played in the youth band. I'm sure that'll come up later. But uh, <clears throat> went to a public school. But there was a church across the street that offered a. Uh, it was somehow we could go across the street to the church for a class on the Bible, and it was a great experience to be able to really talk candidly. When at church, you were given a Snickers bar for reading your Bible that week. Once again, great church, great experience. The place across the street from school was a place to ask questions, and I remember somebody who was a year older than me, when we were talking about truth, what is truth? And the person said something along the lines of, wouldn't anything that, like, yes, we've all heard except Jesus and the gospel is truth. Uh, wouldn't anything that affects my life positively be truth? And that was one of the first moments where I remember, like, not wanting to leave. Like, we still have to have this conversation. Like, I still, I need to hear this guy say that again. 
because truth up till that point was external, always external, always Jesus, except Jesus. And I think I was maybe a, a, a kid who needed to hear, uh, yeah, accepting Jesus is all good, but you might also need to accept yourself <laughs> as a, as a human being, like, yeah, accept Jesus into your heart. You, you better, I think Jesus would much prefer you accepting yourself first. Mm, that's good. Um, I had never heard that. And, um, so then I moved off to a Christian university, Belmont University. I, I studied religion and writing. And the, the religion department at Belmont is just absolutely brilliant. And I studied religion and the arts, and it, it was just a beautiful introduction to like Richard Rohr, uh, Tony Campolo. Uh, and, and at the same exact time, I was involved in this charismatic uh, band that would lead worship nights, and people would come up and get healed. And the contemplative movement that I was experiencing in the classroom was 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 inviting and curious and never started from a place of get here like get on board with what i'm believing what i'm thinking what i'm saying this is the your litmus test towards success it was all i don't know what do you think and if, if y'all have read any richard Rohr, um <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, so good just has so much room it, it felt like somebody was making room for me uh and and then and I, I'm still friends with many of these people, and it was a brilliant musical experience, certainly. Um, I felt like it was putting on a show at the... And it was very much get here. This is your this is our belief system in, the, in kind of the charismatic movement that I was involved in. Um, and, and this is what you need to believe to get this and to speak in tongues and to do all this. And I'd go back to school and just breathe and just say, ah, oh, okay, there's room enough for me. The spirituality started with you're already there instead of get here now mm. and you're already there was a very much more inviting message to me and so just to hopefully pass along the you're already there theology rather than the get here now it was huge for me there's like enough for an entire episode to unpack just in what you just yeah, said <laughs> so all right uh carly let's hear about your background okay tell us about your sweater so I was also raised Southern Baptist probably until I was like seven or eight. The Baptist church really scared me as a kid because I'm really sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> and my pastor, like the range of emotions that he would go through really freaked me out. Like he would be screaming about hell and the enemy and then he would start crying and then he would like, slowly bring his voice back up into like a more hopeful place. But that was like too much for me in an hour. <laughs> um, I didn't have the language at the time, but I felt now that I look back, I just felt like I was being taken advantage of. Like I didn't sign up to go on this wild emotional journey <laughs> and do it every single Sunday. That was just... <laughs> So I came to know what to expect, but I still would just be like, okay, we're going to church. We're doing it. Uh, <laughs> but I think that those early days had a big impression on me of like, I don't think this is for me, but I kind of don't really have a choice because I'm a kid and I just go where my parents take me. But hell really freaked me out. Uh, I don't really speak as eloquently about theology as Daniel does because I have always just known enough to squeak by and like know how to fit in and camouflage into mm -hmm. the background um and I just always tried really hard to be good um because I thought a lot about where I would go when I died and I always I still to this day have to work through this complex of like I have to work harder to be good than everyone else Purity culture like really messed me up too. And that was a big part of it of like, I just felt like I had to work so hard against my own humanity, but then it didn't make sense to me. I thought that God was like kind of a jerk because why would he create these creatures who were just like doomed from the start and just have to fight ourselves our whole lives. But I tried really hard all throughout my adolescence and teenage years and even like young adult years, I went to... I ended up transferring to a really, um, to a Christian college. It was Asbury University and it was a Wesleyan school and I had to go to chapel <laughs> three times a week. 
and everyone, it felt like they weren't addicted to like substances or anything like that, but it just felt like emotional addiction. Like everyone was just crying all the time. I was like, I'm just trying to like get coffee in the student center and (laughs) this person, (laughs) like someone's having a breakdown in like every corner. Yeah, I, I tried really hard to feel all the right things and I tried really hard to curate all these experiences, but I just like felt like I shouldn't be there. Like I was intruding on an experience that wasn't really meant for me, like listening in on all these conversations and things and I would get set, I was just so frustrated the whole time. And during chapel when they would do altar calls and stuff like that, I would just be like, I would sit down and I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Um, And people would like stand up and put their hands up during songs. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be like, no, like this is a protest. I'm not standing up because this same person who's sitting next to me, who when something actually profound was being said by like a guest speaker was like on their phone the whole time, but now they're standing up and putting their hands over their head and like, doing this number of like hand on the heart and then the other hand in the air. And I just would get, it just felt like theater to me. Um, and that hasn't really changed that much (laughs) (laughs) as far as how I, I feel about it. But, um, now that I am an adult and I don't have to get dragged to church, (laughs) um, (laughs) I, I think now that I, I just believe more in my own goodness and like trust myself more now that I am not really involved in any kind of organized church. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a snippet of my background. A lot of years spent okay. frustrated. So now that we kind of know your sweater, Um, can you explain maybe your first thread or some threads that you remember starting to pull early on? I I think the first thread goes back to, so they're telling me that everything that's ever been true is in this book, but what, like, what if something else gives me hope and goodness? And it was, I think it was that a student saying, in a class that he was free to say, this is that, that Christian class somehow that we had across the street from our public school. Like, could truth be, could it be true that something is a good gift to you and it's not from the Bible and it, it, it carries such a huge weight. And that felt like, that felt like the most concise version of though you haven't read the magic words in the book, I did get baptized when I was in sixth or seventh grade you're you're ultimately okay and you're gonna find things in life that will guide you and will be lights you can you can put them in your bag and so that was the first pull of a oh maybe not everything that's ever been true is located in this book maybe even the guy who's at the center of this book would suggest not just putting it in resin and and making sure that it's stable throughout time (laughs) That this is the only truth that that actually you're going to find some things that are true outside of here that could help you more than the things that are in here. And that's okay. You don't need to weight those less. Uh, All right, Carly, what about you after you have your sweater? What are some of the threads that start poking you (laughs) or sticking out, (laughs) getting scratchy? Um, I think... I never really liked the way that as a girl, I was treated differently. Like even in like my Christian daycare, even in my little Sunday school classes, even in the youth group, um, I just felt so burdened by being female bodied (laughs) because I just felt like there was so much more responsibility on me to like be careful and be quiet and meek and um, just like be obedient. And that didn't really sit well with me. So I think that that was probably the first one is that I was even like from being a little kid, like uh, prepubescent, I was taught to like sit a certain way and wear certain things and speak a certain way and play with other little girls with 
dolls, like just that kind of thing. And like the roles that women were supposed to uh, play in church of just like we were listeners, not contributors. I was scolded for asking questions. Um, If I was doing anything but like listening intently, then I felt like I was in trouble. But I couldn't just listen because, you know, like most little kids had a little bit of attention deficit stuff going on. And like I needed to be engaged to really participate. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of quelled just by like being like, no, you just need to listen. You don't need to ask questions. Um, You talked about just feeling that kind of expectation within the church. Did you find that that kind of mentality made its way into like the public school system and the way students were treated, um, different expectations as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I can't tell you how many times like I would have to, even at, in elementary school, have to, I would wear shorts to school and I'd have to put my arms down. And if my shorts were like uh, above my fingertips, like as I put my arms down to my side, I would have to, they would have a, a lost and found and I'd have to find something to wear in there. I mean, I guess there is a pretext of like, I, I mean, we had sex ed in school and then we had sex ed in church the working metaphor they separated guys and girls was a lizard and a dragon for men and it was just like how to (laughs) it was like your sexuality is going to be insatiable so you better it was it was it was pretty oh my god to think about how how much of a sponge you are at that age and like the the lessons that you soak up (laughs) at sixth grade I was prepubescent during sex ed, so it was all very confusing to me. <laughs> I don't, I don't feel I'm insatiable at you all. Had sex ed at church. It was, yeah. it was like a, it was like a true love waits. Oh yeah, gotcha, okay. gotcha. Now it makes sense. Did you have a true ring? Love did you have a true love waits ring? I did, I did not, but every single girl in our class did, I and did. the guys were. I, I did. You did. I, 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 I definitely a, a purity ring. Yep. I was never given the opportunity to disgrace that ring. <laughs> but I, it was, it was a, yeah, the, the females in the room were given the rings. The guys in the room were just not. See, that's like another example of what you're talking about, yeah. Carly. It's on us. Yeah. Yeah. I never got a ring <laughs> because my mom didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's because she knew that that I wouldn't wear it. But yeah, like during sex ed until that's another uh, way that it it worked itself in because I went I was in public school in uh, Mississippi and our sex ed wasn't about safe sex. It was about all of the terrors that will occur if you have sex, um, but not really talking about like uh, harm reduction or just how to be safe about it. So my sex ed in in church was just true love way. It's like, just don't do it. Um, and as we will, I'm sure, talk about very soon, that did not, that's not how my story panned out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Carly, you kind of just alluded to it, but I guess we could go ahead and talk about it now. I was a bit disingenuous, I guess, at the beginning when I said that you're my cousin because, uh, you know, obviously our relationship has taken on a different form as adults. Um and so do you want to tell what you're talking about, like with the sex ed and the true love weights? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I started dating a Christian boy, my very first serious boyfriend, um, when I was 14, I think. And I felt all a lot of pressure to just be like, oh, he can't he can't control himself. So I have to control myself and like my sexual urges and everything else. Um, and over time I dated this person for like a little over two years and about a year into the relationship, um, he just started pressuring me, uh, to, to have sex. We went to church together We were very much in love as much as I knew what love was Mm -hmm. at the ripe old age of 15. And the, um, 
the ideology behind it was just like, oh, well, we're going to get married anyway. So like God won't care (laughs) if we have sex. (laughs) And the very first time that I had sex, I got pregnant as I was 15 at the time. I didn't find out until like a few months in because I just, I was also like a late bloomer as far as puberty went. Like I started by, I came into puberty when I was 14. I started my period when I was 14. Um, So I just was like, just getting to know my growing body (laughs) anyway. And so I just was not, I feel like another thing that uh, purity culture just taught me was how to ignore my physical body. And like, I was so disembodied. Um, I found out when I was like three or four months along, like it was pretty pretty late because I was um I was just a teenager and like I just thought that my body was growing because that's what bodies do Mm -hmm. um I found out and I told my mom and she I was so scared I was so scared because I was like I have not only like given away the only thing that gives me worth as a human um as a female So then like knowing that it was not only did I do like at the time what I thought was the worst thing that I could have done, um, but I had everyone was going to know and I had to tell my mom. (laughs) And so I told my mom and she was so calm about it, which I don't think I ever in my whole life have given my mom enough credit because she is. She's just like even keeled most of the time. I project like all of my worst case scenarios onto her. Um, A lot of my life I've done that, but she was just like, we're just going to figure it out. Um, And there was never really like a question of what, what was going to happen. We were just going to like figure out where to go from here. And there was no question that like, I was going to have this baby, like carry this baby to term. I, this next part is kind of muddy for me because I, I have a lot of like repression around this time period because it was really hard uh, as a teenager. But Nathan, I feel like you can fill in this next part of like how everything came together. Yeah, I'll see if I can remember it too. It's actually kind of money for me too. But I just remember Lindsay and I were at the point where Jack was two, two and a half, somewhere in there. And we were like, do we want a second? I don't know. Do we want to go through pregnancy again and all of that? I say we collectively, but you know, (laughs) Lindsay was, do I want to go through that again? And then we found out about Carly, uh, and and I don't even remember how it came up, but I just remember floating the idea of, hey, if they're thinking adoption, Lindsay and I could, you know, throw our hats in the ring. I think I went through my dad probably, had dad reach out to, to Carly's mom, and we got word back like a week later. They 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 would be interested if, uh, if you're serious, and we were like, yeah, we're serious. Yeah, things just kind of fell into place after that. Uh, for us. And then it was tracking Carly's pregnancy. I remember the 08 Olympics were on. So we were, we were watching Michael Phelps swim. I think when we got a call, like, Hey, you need to uh, come on down to Mississippi. Um, it's happening. And so, yeah. And so, uh, Carly had her, uh, a little girl and, uh, my wife, Lindsay was in the room when she was delivered and we stayed there at the hospital. Um, Carly was in for maybe two days, three days. There was a 72-hour waiting period, um, and so we we went. We all went to the courthouse after 72 hours, and a judge made it official. And and uh, yeah, so uh, so Carly had um, Carly gave birth to what would become our daughter. Mm-hmm. And it always felt that way. I still don't really know what I believe, like big picture about anything (laughs) um of like if there's any um pattern or like one source or many sources of like the creator of the universe but this is what gives me like uh i'm still suspicious or not suspicious i'm still open to the idea that there is meaning to all of the chaos of the human experience because of the way that all of this worked out and at the same time this felt like the first decision that only I could make like by Mm. myself for the first time in my life because I was still like a minor I was still a kid I was newly 16 um and 
but it just didn't really feel like a choice at all. Like it just felt like this is just what's like, I, I felt like I received a, a series of instructions on like what to do because I look back and I'm like, I don't remember ever consciously making that decision, but it, it always felt like I was, uh, it's going to sound so cheesy, but just like a vessel. I got like to this day, that's still like one of probably the, uh, I'm going to start crying now, <laughs> the <laughs> accomplishment in my life that like I'm the most proud of. And I get really, um, it really bumps me out that for a long time I felt like that was uh, something to be ashamed of in any way. Um, because now I'm so proud of it. <laughs> I mean, you effectively did the worst thing. Like, that's the thing that we were always told was the worst yeah. thing. And I was told that was the worst thing I could do. Going to, to church as a pregnant teenager was brutal. <laughs> um, sure. Because everyone just would always say all of this stuff like they were so proud of me. But it, they said that, but it didn't feel that way. Um, they, they were proud of you for, I'm assuming, not having an abortion. Yes. For going through with, with the baby. I'm, I'm, but then, I mean, essentially you doubled down and said, well, no, if you care about life, you're going to care about this. And it seems to me, I mean, from the outside, like your community, what what's so incredible and is that you weren't cast out, it seems. I, I will say it was brutal, but I think that that was like a, of my own making too, because I just was so, I mean, when you're a teenager, you're already self-conscious, but like to have this added thing that's like unavoidable that everyone knows about that like I it just was like really hard and it just felt like people were proud of me because I had made the decision to like carry a baby to term instead of the alternative but there was no it was like after it happened too it was like there was no follow-through with are you still proud of me? Like, can I, are you still Mm. here for me (laughs) even afterwards? Because after that, it just felt like, uh, the support of the people waned and the people like came out from the woodwork because I felt like I was a spectacle. And then afterwards the show was over and then everyone was like, well, I guess you're just going to be fine now. (laughs) Like you don't need us anymore. You don't need our support anymore because you did what we wanted you to do. And, and I did what I wanted to do. And that was, and that feels like an important distinction. Um, but even still like afterwards, it just felt like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I work in mental health now and I know how important, like, yeah, the initial like support is great, but like follow up is important Mm -hmm. too. And like maintenance, um, even when things are like stable and okay like that's so important and that it just matters and that that's just not really what I received from the church everyone just kind of was like okay we're just gonna go back to normal now because this this season is over and like it wasn't over for me um yeah like how did that affect your your threads your sweater uh it just confirmed what I already kind of thought, which was that (laughs) Um, it was all like theater. Um, It was all like performative uh, sympathy. And I don't know that I would have to spend the rest of my life trying to right my wrongs and like to make up for all the, the wrong that I had done. Um, and so it was just like a Sisyphean struggle from there of like, well, I guess I just have to try to undo all of this by being just really, really extraordinarily good. That is more of what I, I still carry with me of like feeling, sorry, I feel like I'm taking over. No, this, this story is, this is, is good. This, this story is important. And I always felt like afterwards, if anybody was my friend or if anybody, if I'd started dating someone new or something like I would almost use this story as a way to be like, what are you made out of? Like, can you handle, (laughs) can you handle it? (laughs) Because I would, I would 
more so with with romantic interests i would present it like probably way earlier than felt appropriate but i just didn't want to get anywhere with anyone and know that they weren't okay with this huge part of my life um and with friends i would like even when people would accept me and like say all the right things and make me feel uh like held and safe in telling that story i would still like this little mean voice in the back of my head was like well everyone's just doing you a favor by like loving you <laughs> that's something that like i still have to to work through of like i it's been 13 years and i still am trying to figure out how to tell this story in in the way that I feel does it justice because it's it's the best story that I have the privilege of telling it like at this point in my life but I am always just like I just want to tell it right hmm. um and honor the person who the story's about too. yeah exactly sorry <laughs> it's okay <laughs> it's your story and it's her story too yeah it's interesting that, I, I mean, the things that I see, in, even in our marriage, I mean, I, I know that we've all loved people and we wish that we could reach into their life and fix one thing. And, I, and fix, not undo. Like, try to communicate to you that, no, you are a beautiful and good human being and you don't need to do anything to achieve that. Not to paint a perfect intersection point, but like, you've are, like, it's not in spite of, it's because of everything that you've been through and you are already there you don't have to work to achieve yeah. or do anything yeah i'm very proud of you i'm very grateful <laughs> to be somebody that's just on the side lines but i think the way that like daniel your specific threads that you pulled early and the way that you your met your your core belief became you're already there and so I just see that as being uh, so important in your relationship with Carly. Mm -hmm. and, and it's certainly a survival mechanism. Like, I wonder how much of these become survival mechanisms of like, if I'm not already there, I mean, I was, I, when I guess I heard a theology of you're already there, I immediately grabbed onto it like somebody who's sinking under the water. <laughs> yeah. Because it was like, well, if I'm not, a, that fixes everything if i'm already there then i can be okay with sexual urges i can be okay with with um being small i can be okay with um not necessarily being good at sports like um but i think that that like the fact that you were told that or the message that you received as a kid that you were already there um even though like sometimes it doesn't seem like you believe it it's still like a, something that you breathe in. Like, just to reference what Nathan was talking about, like, I, I sometimes just need you to be like, you're good. Mm -hmm. But you do that instinctively just because that is a mm -hmm. part of, of your worldview. Like, that is, and sometimes you don't really like believe it about yourself. When you talk about um, you've got to get there versus you're already there, right? Like those two different mindsets. Where, who taught you uh, that you're already there? Or where did you pick that up? Uh, Dane Anthony at Belmont University. Um, first year seminar professor talked me through a major change from audio engineering to, to religion. And I, I used to lie in high school. I, I mean, it started in eighth grade, my first panic attack. Um, I was asked to read something 25 people in a public school classroom or so the page the english language turned into to garbled mess i couldn't read this was in may and so i was just like daniel you've got to fix this before high school you've got to fix that you've got to fix your anxiety before high school and i didn't and so when i i talked to all my high school teachers and i talked to my sunday school teachers and i said i don't read like i don't read publicly and so when i got to college and I switched my major. I took Dane Anthony's first year seminar class, which was called The Art of Paying Attention, which was brilliant. Like when the class was over, I would always want to pick his brain about certain things. So when I took his Old Testament class, he, uh, I said, Dane, just so you know, like we're friends now, we're a semester in. Um, I don't read. In your, in your Old Testament class, if you call me to read, I won't do it. Um, just so you know. <laughs> and he said, 
do you want to, like, essentially, do you want to get better? That was such a big gift. It would have been so much easier for him to say, cool. Mm -hmm. But he cared enough to say, do you want to get better? And to give me the peace of mind to know, hey, if you, if you get called on to read and you have a panic attack, that's okay. If you, um, your status as a student and your status as a, um, as a human being in the classroom, that's not up for grabs. Like that's, that's, that's intact and in place. And, um, yeah, so that's, that was really huge for me. And now, I mean, granted, I always feel like it's up for grabs still, um, I just have a clarifying question. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah. I know that y'all are the ones supposed to be no, asking the questions. Good. No, no, go for it. <laughs> so did he ever, like, uh, explicitly just say to you, like, you're you're already here? Or is that just what you, you walked away feeling? I think that's what I walked away feeling. So okay. I think that that was, um, he would certainly listen with a posture of, you can't say anything that would knock me off my feet. Mm-hmm. So anything you're thinking and feeling and experiencing uh, is either good or bad. It, it, taking away that dichotomy and saying, no, anything you're thinking or feeling exists. Yeah. So he no, he never said it explicitly, okay. but I just understood that um, I wouldn't be kicked out of the class. I think you, you're a little self-deprecating when you say, like, you know, I, this was a survival mechanism for me, whatever, your whole message, because... You know, like Carly said, you didn't get this message from someone else. This is that you you're creating your belief system and you're using this. You're already there uh, message that you're creating and you're living that out. And, uh, you know, I don't think you give yourself enough credit for that, regardless of where your faith is. Now, your faith is in the goodness of people and your faith is in one like the way it expresses itself is that you want people to see their own goodness, you know? And I think a lot of people, as we go through deconstruction, we strip away everything that was our, our identity and everything that gave us our goodness before we've stripped away. But your message is so important. You know, what you're doing with your wife, what you're doing with people you work with, this message that we are already there and we're good. You know, we are, we are not inherently evil. We are not inherently disgusting. We are not inherently vile. We're not an abomination. We're already there. Um, I think is is a, an extremely important message for people to hear, especially people who left this faith that gave them their value. That's something you do, and it's something you do well. I feel very lucky to get to reap the benefits of Daniel's belief system, like every day, because it feels like a salve. I don't know. I I, I don't even know how to. Explain. I just feel really grateful to have heard. Like that I don't have to work hard to be good or wonderful. It kind of goes with what you were saying. And I think a lot of us have experienced of just that from such a young age, feeling like we have to work so hard to overcome our, you know, bad selves, our, you know, work through all of our issues. And, and then to have somebody that you get to experience, oh, that kind of peace that acceptance or like we've been talking about being seen and realizing that through your partner is is nice yeah i've been interested so some of my work here is setting the tone for what camp looks like for six to ten year olds and i've tried my best to um it's a christian camp so to give them something that is from the gospels or from i, I mean every single time i speak i essentially speak from the old testament but <laughs> Um, <laughs> OT best tea. Um, <laughs> I'm interested, Nathan, we all grew up with stuff that now we're deconstructing. That's the whole principle behind the podcast. Um, so I suppose you're raising your kids in an effort not to give them too many things that they have to actually deconstruct. Do you know how to ask that question in a better way? Uh, raising children outside of the template that like would, how do you raise kids? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no it's a good question and it's one our previous episode with sean and julie we talked about because they're kind of in the middle of that they have three kids and they're you know trying trying to strike a balance between past life and future life and this is i was so nervous carly um uh i don't i don't know how to get to the point where i want to say this but 
of all the gifts the Avet brothers have given me over the years. Uh, you know, I mean, they've been the soundtrack to the last, I don't know, 15 years of my life. Their concerts have meant a lot to me. They were the soundtrack for my grief, you know, after my dad died. And then, uh, but mostly, there was a day like, I don't know, 2010, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there when I was on Facebook and I was just scrolling. And Carly and I were friends on Facebook and we hadn't had a, a ton of uh, communication. Um, and I saw lyrics to The Weight of Lies by the Avett Brothers uh, she had posted. And it was like a tiny little opening in this door because, I, you know, I didn't really know how to handle that relationship. Carly was growing up. You were probably, you know, late teens, early 20s at the time. And I definitely felt this connection to you and your, I mean, my family wouldn't exist the way I know it without you. Um, and so I wanted to figure out a way to like kind of bring you in or, you know, be connected. And when you share those lyrics, you know, I kind of, I think I commented something about the Avett brothers on there and you talked about Scott and Seth being your boyfriends. Uh, so, um, me too. Uh, so like it, anytime, uh, anytime I would go to a concert or, you know, something I would just text Carly about the Avett brothers and it, it just, it paved the way, um, for us to have this relationship that kept progressing until, uh, one spring break, uh, we drove down to North Carolina. Um, yeah. We pretended like we were just going down to see Asheville, but we, really we just wanted to see if we could find a find a, a way to meet with Carly and opened up that relationship. And I met Daniel then, and I like uh, I just felt so much ease in my heart because uh, I felt like like it was important to me for you to find the right person. And I saw that you had, and it just it it gave me so much peace and comfort. And then you know, like since then. I feel like we've progressively become, you know, more part of each other's lives and, and, you know, having, having my daughter be able to reach out when she wants and, and you, you know, FaceTime her and, uh, it's meant a lot. The very thing you're asking about, I was so nervous about, like, I didn't want to disappoint you. You know, I didn't want that to be like something you expected from us because that's, you know, that's how I'd been my whole life. Uh, and, and so it's funny that you asked that question because it, it's it was an important question for me and it was just so much comfort to me like okay we're we're on the same page here um and to answer your original question before i took it in a totally different direction uh i i don't know how it is i'm just trying to uh create kindness and leave them open to uh whatever belief system they want to adopt um i think um that's a question a lot of parents who deconstruct have to figure out for themselves like what what are they going to give their kids as uh, you know a value system or a belief system and for us it's it's just about just be kind um that's that's where we're where we're trying to trying to get with that so um you know now that you've kind of told us your threads that you've pulled where would you say you are now in your belief systems trying to be grateful each day um I, I saying yes to people and being grateful, kind of like an improv comedian, just saying yes and to to what is happening. And and granted, I know that that I'm I'm due for a whole lot more joy and a whole lot more pain. And saying um, yes to that and know that I'm being seen. Also, we we started going to an Episcopal church uh, a couple weeks before the the, the uh, inevitable shutdown, and the way that they framed it as the world was moving to shut down was this is a reminder of how close we are as human beings and how transferable not only this disease is but life is and how how the air we breathe is important and and we should consider ourselves global neighbors mm -hmm. and so i see myself as a global neighbor and i want to become a better global neighbor it's very concise. that's beautiful man very yeah. good carly anything you want to add I still don't really know what I believe concretely about anything. I'm so much less frustrated than I used to be with Christians, which feels mm -hmm. really important because I'm so grateful that my family is, I'm glad they are who they are. I, I just acknowledge that people ultimately are looking for safety and trying to find what makes them feel safe. And it's really hard for me to judge people 
for just leaning into something that makes them feel safe. And I don't agree with it most of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also have room in my heart to believe that um, people aren't static um, and that, I, I don't know, I, I just think that people can change and evolve and grow. And I've seen that in my own family and being very, very conservative and still being able to embrace me as a very openly not conservative person. (laughs) Um, But if they can love me and um, try, they're not always perfect at it, but like honoring what makes me feel safe, then I can try to hold uh, reverence for what makes them feel safe and to feel free to speak to it when I don't agree with it or when it start, their safety starts to make me feel unsafe mm. um, and learning how to speak to that in a way that isn't angry or aggressive, but just leveling with them like person to person. And I know this is weird, but I kind of want to read a poem because I feel like it summarizes what I feel. Love it. So Mary Oliver is like uh, my, she's a a poet. She died a few years ago, Um, but she is very into the natural world. And I feel like that's where I experience, that's where my spirituality like takes place. There is a poem and it's called Wild Geese. It starts as, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So. Whew. Yeah. Oh man. Well, uh, yeah. Can't, can't thank you enough for being willing to do this. Um, I think both of you have the depth and, and just the interesting enough stories that you very easily could have done this separately and it would have been just as powerful, but you know, I, I loved hearing, uh, you know, Daniel, you called attention to it, that intersection Mm -hmm. of, you know, of your lives that, you know, has, has made this beautiful marriage. Um, you know, Lindsay and I always talk, you know, our family is our son, our daughter, each other, and Carly. And then as of a couple of years ago, Daniel. We certainly feel, feel that. Yeah, we feel the same way. Yeah, and I want you to. Um, yeah. And I appreciate yeah. you, all three of you, like trusting us to listen in on your story. It was really powerful because one of the things that we try to talk about on this podcast is like, even if our threads are different. What I'm finding, especially today, is just that a lot of the threads really are in common. The underlying things, you know? Your stories are amazing and beautiful, and I'm glad that we, we get the chance to uh, to share it. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah thanks, yeah. thanks so much for inviting us. I was really nervous, but this was such a necessary conversation and a very interesting way to have it. And I just really appreciate uh, y'all trusting us to to navigate for helping us navigate this mm-hmm. uh, really gracefully and in a way that feels like it does the portrayal of our our bond and the importance of one another in each other's lives. Like this feels very like it does the story justice, which is always what I'm concerned with. I'm just really proud of this conversation and I'm really, I really am grateful that y'all invited us to do this. Yeah. Well, love you guys. Thank you both. Right. You too. Love yeah. You too. Cliff, Megan, great it to meet really you. It was really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I, I hope we get to spend yeah. like, like some actual time together 
sometime. That would be cool. Nathan, you need to make that happen. Yeah, okay, it's on me. Good. All right, well, we're back now in uh, in the present, or the present-ish, since we recorded this a few days ago. True. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's never it's never really the present, I guess, when you listen to a podcast. Unless we decide one day to do a live episode. Ooh. Live event. Yeah, I've uh, already been thinking about where are we going to go on vacation this summer so we can have... A- <laughs> where are we going to host our Pulling Threads retreat? That's yeah. what we need to talk Blue about. Blue Ridge Mountains. When we have people in. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we'll see. Okay. Hey, Megan, can you tell everybody where they can where they can find us? Sure. Pullingthreads.captivate.fm. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. The talk. <laughs> and if you have any questions, feel free to shoot us an email at yeah, pullingthreadspodcast at gmail.com. And we appreciate those of you who've reached out to us. I think we're gonna maybe try to get a little feedback form going too, so we can hear from you. And give us some some tips and some insight into when and what you're enjoying. And, so. Yeah, and, and your encouraging words. Yeah, but but don't hold back on the criticism. Like just lay into us. <laughs> Let us know. We'll get better. We promise. Uh, all right. So next week. Uh, yeah, we're gonna be interviewing a colleague. And Megan, I know you're about to ask, so I'm gonna beat you to it. Um, his he has asked that his podcast bear, pairings be Oreos and milk, as he has the palate of a kindergartner. Me too, Carter. Me too. Yeah. Good, good stuff. I I needed an excuse to be able to do that, so this is a good excuse. <laughs> there you go. You guys. And they have gluten free Oreos for those of you with gluten sensitivities. <laughs> they also have double stuffed. So. They also have weird-ass flavors now. <laughs> yeah, they, do. <laughs> they do. I've seen those. So go get your cinnamon roll Oreos. Oh. Also, this orange cream I, soda. I think <laughs> this episode will go down as the first ever Pulling Threads episode that Megan used a foul language word. It's yes. And, yeah. yes. <laughs> Cover your ears, Mom and Dad. All right. Well, bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Gong get. Gong get. I also have to pee my pants. Like, I don't have to pee my pants. You have to pee your pants. I'm about to pee my pants. Save that sound clip.